Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Thank you, Professor Bartolome, for introducing me and for accompanying me. Can you hear me in the very back row? No. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me in the last row? Not well. Uh, I'd like to get this mic off and this mic on. Can you hear me now? OK, great. I'd like to thank the committee of the Hitchcock Lectures or Hitchcock Professorship for selecting me for this honor and Deans Cerny and Mason who supervise that committee. For me, it's really thrilling to be here and there are two good reasons, the past and the future. Uh, the previous speakers in this series Many of them were my childhood heroes. And I'm only going to mention some names of people 
who were in this series before 1950, which goes back to my <laughs> which goes back to my childhood. But among them were Vito Volterra, Sewell Wright, R.A. Fisher, J.B.S. Haldane, and several pioneers in population, Henry Fairfield Osborne, mathematician G.H. Hardy. So anybody who stands here in that line of succession has to be thrilled. The other reason I'm thrilled to be here is that the people in this room represent the best and the brightest for the future. And uh, so there is hope for continuity into the next generation. I would request that cellular telephones, beepers, messages from God, and other interventions be turned off for the duration of this talk. This is the first of actually four installments. Can you, can you really hear me in the back now? You're okay, okay. So there are four installments. Today's talk is called, How Many People Can the Earth Support? By the end of this talk, you'll know the answer to that question, if there is one. The second tomorrow talk is about human carrying capacity, the concepts, methods, and models, which will address the question, why you aren't satisfied with the results of today's lecture. The, the third talk is going to be a departmental seminar in ESPM. And I don't remember which day it is. It's next week. Does anybody know? Monday, Monday next week. And it addresses the fundamental question of cooperation versus self-interest, which underlies all the issues that we're going to talk about today. But that is going to be a technical talk. And if you're not comfortable with high school algebra, it's not for you. But the issues are running throughout all these talks. And then sometime next week, there's going to be a showing of films about population and a discussion. And this is a chance to get practice in critical thinking about the ways that population questions are presented for public consumption and about your views on these questions. So I'm looking forward to a discussion at that session, in addition to a discussion at the end of this session. My uh, time sheet for this job today is roughly up to but not exceeding one hour of talk from me and then 20 minutes to 25 minutes of discussion. So that, that's the plan. Could I have the first slide, please? Or do I do that? I don't know whether I do that or not. That's the first slide. Thank you very much. Okay. Too much light? OK. So we need the lights down for this slide, at least. The house lights, I mean. Can you see the slide? OK. So the title for my lecture today is, How Many People Can the Earth Support? That sounds like a simple question, but it is not a question like, how old are you? which has a simple numerical answer at any one time. How many people the Earth can support depends on both natural constraints and human choices, both individual and collective. 
Natural scientists usually emphasize the natural constraints like land, water, and minerals. Social scientists usually emphasize the human choices like values, economic systems, and political institutions. Neither alone is sufficient to understand how many people the Earth can support. So if you walk out of here after all the slides and all the data and all the talk saying, what did he actually say? You can summarize it in just two words, constraints and choices. I'll begin by reviewing the history of population and some estimates of its possible futures over the coming half century. Then I'll explain some ways that population interacts with economics, the environment, and culture. This description will explain why some people are worried about how many people the Earth can support. So if you can add to your two-word summary, constraints and choices, four additional words, the four words are my checklist for thinking about these problems, population, economics, environment, and culture. Ultimately, late in this lecture, I'll review some answers to the question, how many people can the Earth support? Unfortunately, none of these answers is very convincing, and tomorrow you'll see why in gory detail. So my contribution will be to replace the single question, how many people can the Earth support, by 11 more specific and more useful questions. I'm not here to sell you any agenda. I hope to offer a perspective to protect you from those who say that rapid population growth is no problem at all, and from those who say that population growth is the only problem. I look forward to your questions. Let's start with where we are. Late 1999, we had 6 billion people, so presumably we have some more now. Where population is increasing by 78 million a year, that's approximately 150 per minute, or 9,000 people during the one hour of this talk. That's 1.3% per year. If the 1.3% growth rate persisted, it would take 53 years for the population to double, but that growth rate will not persist, and you'll see why. At the current birth rates, the average woman in the world has about 2.9 children. I've seen other estimates recently of 2.7. We don't know within that much precision anyway. The replacement level is 2.1 children per woman per lifetime, so you can see that this number is bigger than that. Consequently, global population growth continues. Well, you may have read in the paper that the United Nations announced the day of 6 billion on the 12th of October, 99. You probably didn't read that the US Census Bureau announced the day of 6 billion as 19th of July, 1999. How can that be? Well, the truth of the matter is that we estimate that one-fifth of the world's people have not been counted since 1990. Of course, this is only a guess because they haven't been counted, so we don't know how many we haven't counted. If you take a 2% uncertainty, which is the uncertainty roughly of the United States Census, and that certainly is a lower bound on the uncertainty for the whole world, 2% of 6 billion is 120 million people. So that's at a minimum, we do not know the population of the world plus or minus one whole Japan. So if you're increasing as 80 million a year, as I showed in the previous slide, 
and your uncertainty is 120 million, then there's a year and a half uncertainty when you pass 6 billion. In other words, about 18 months. So sometime in 98, 99, or this year, we will have passed 6 billion, and that's why this is possible, but this underestimates the real uncertainty. Roughly speaking, there were four major steps in the evolution of our present population. The first was the local agricultural revolution or evolution, as you wish. The inventions of agriculture in several different parts of the world. Everybody's heard about the Fertile Crescent in the Tigris-Euphrates, but also in West Africa, in Southeast Asia, and in the New World, agriculture was independently invented, some people say four, some people say seven times. That was about 10 to 12,000 years ago, depending on where. Then, after the New World and discovered, was discovered, so-called, by the Old World, uh, there was a global agricultural revolution which re reduced death rates worldwide and began the modern ri rapid rise of population. Then there was another revolution after World War II when uh, public health measures were spread around the world, and the most recent was in 1970 when people began to get control of their own fertility. We can illustrate this in a graph. 2,000 years ago, there were about a quarter billion people on the planet plus or minus a couple hundred million. We don't know precisely. It took about 16 and a half centuries for the population to double to half a billion. So a doubling time of 16 and a half centuries was the characteristic doubling time after the local agricultural revolutions and before the global agricultural revolutions. Sometime around here, when the new world and the old world began to exchange people and food crops and material resources in an intensive way, the growth rate of the population picked up because the death rates dropped. That's probably a result of improved nutrition, but there may have been other changes as well. So the, the doubling time to go from half a billion around 1650 to a billion around 1830 was less than two centuries, whereas this doubling time was 16 and a half centuries. Now, you know that in exponential growth, the doubling time is constant. It's like, could we have the lights up a little bit, please? I like to see whether people are sleeping. Can we? <laughs> you're sleeping, you're telling. I'd like some more house lights, please. Hello. Could I have some house lights up, please? Please, could I have the house lights up? Thank you very much. Could I have some house lights, please? Yeah, good, thanks. Okay, so if population had been growing exponentially, it would have taken another 16 and a half centuries, somewhere over there, before it doubled from half a billion to a billion. Instead, it took less than two centuries, and that was before the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution, which kicked in about here, made it possible for population to double now from one to two billion in less than one century, about one century. So again, there was a doubling in the rate of growth. The next doubling, instead of one century, occurred in just 44 years from 1930 to 1974. 
looking back from where we are now, the last doubling occurred in about 40 years, 39, 40 years. This is like having an interest-bearing account in which the interest rate increases with the balance in the account. If you can find such an account, I would like to invest my money. The people in this room who are 40 years old or older, and there may be some of those, are the first people in the history of the human species who have lived through a doubling of human population in their own lifetime. Never before the 20th century, second half, had that happened. And some people who were born in 1930 or earlier have seen a tripling. That hasn't happened before. In absolute terms, it took from the beginning of time to 1830 or so to put the first billion on the planet. We added the most recent billion in 12 years. So demographically, this is a totally new ballgame. Well, I want to go back for a minute. I call this slide my shower curtain slide because what it reveals is interesting, but what it conceals is at least as interesting. And so I'm going to zoom in to the last 50 years right here and change the vertical axis from absolute population to percent increase per year, effectively kind of a derivative. So this is 1950. This is where we are, roughly. And everything to the right of this is projection. Everything to the left is estimate observation. And this slide points out two things. The population growth rate of the world reached its all-time peak of around 2.1% per year around 1965 and then began to fall. I would argue that that is the most important demographic change in human demographic history. Because in this case, the fall was due to a decline in fertility, the number of children that people had, not as in the 14th century at the time of the Black Plague, due to a rise in death rates. This is a reduction in fertility. And this turn of a corner was not predicted by anybody, not by the demographers, not by anybody. And it was not even known at the time. And we still don't have a very good understanding of exactly why it happened then. I'd also like to point out that after fertility had fallen for about 15 years, if you look at the slides of the growth rate, published around this time, they predict a continuing growth rate decline like that. In fact, the population leveled off. The population growth rate leveled off for about 15 years. If you look at the predicted population growth rate slides published here, they predict a continued flat rate of growth as if the decline had permanently ended, but instead the growth rate went down like that. We don't have a good theory to predict future population growth rate. And so this smooth decline here, how plausible is that? Not terribly. Well, the other thing that this slide shows you requires that I tell you a story about an ecologist 
an economist and a statistician who went on a deer hunt with bow and arrow. And they were stalking through the forest when suddenly they spotted a deer. And the economist took careful aim and fired. And as you would expect from an economist, the arrow landed five meters to the right of the deer. <laughs> then the ecologist took careful aim and fired. And as you might expect, the arrow landed five meters to the left of the deer. Then the statistician looked at the two arrows and began jumping up and down and shouting, we got it, we got it. Well, the point of the story is that it's no better hunting deer with the average arrow than it is trying to understand how the world works with purely global statistics. In fact, there are two different worlds on this planet I'm approximating, a rich world and a poor world. In the rich world, the population growth rate has been declining for a century or more and has continued to decline. In the poor world, the population growth rate was lower than that in the rich world, basically until the end of World War II, when the rich countries learned how to export health without exporting wealth. And that public health measures reduced death rates in the poor countries, and population growth rate shot up. And only around 1965 did the poor countries realize that they had a problem the individuals in those countries began to reduce their fertility and population growth rate of the poor countries declined. When it declined, the population growth rate of the world also declined. So we live in a world of contrasting poverty and wealth. And here you can see them side by side in a South Asian city, Dhaka, Bangladesh. So let me point out some differences between these two worlds. 80% of the world lives in the poor countries. 20%, 1.2 billion roughly, live in the rich countries. The poor countries are increasing about 18 times faster than the rich countries. The poor countries have two and a half times as many people per square kilometer as the rich countries. And an infant born in a poor country has roughly seven times the chance of dying by age one of an infant born in the rich countries. Notwithstanding this mortality, the difference in fertility is so large that you have greater growth. The average number of children per woman is about twice in the poor countries what it is in the rich countries. Another major and important difference is that roughly 36% of people in the poor countries live in cities. Three quarters in rich countries live in cities. And we call them rich and poor because the average income per person in 95 was $1,100 per person. In 95 was $19,000 per person per year. Now it's about 1,300 and in excess of 20,000 per year. And an interesting fact, a detail, if you compare the rates of increase, the percentage increase of income in the poor countries is much greater than the percentage increase in the rich countries. Looks like they're catching up. But this base is so much lower 
that the absolute increase of $200 is much less than the absolute increase of five of $1,000 here. So you can, depending on which statistics you prefer to lie with, you can say they're catching up in relative terms, yes they are, but in absolute terms they're falling further behind. And I just want to emphasize that talking about two worlds is an oversimplification. Uh, the, there's a tremendous variation from one region to another uh, in the uh, number of children per, per woman. In Africa, 5.9, maybe it's a little bit lower now. In China, 2.0, it's definitely lower now. It's about 1.6. These are death rate, uh, birth rates at 1994. So there's enormous variation within the poor world as well as in the rich world. Well, it's not the numbers of people that are the only concern. It's the quality of life, the poor quality of life that many of them suffer. And I'll just mention briefly, worldwide, about one person in three is infected with the bacillus of tuberculosis. In Africa, every other person, half of the population, is infected with the TB bacillus. When you combine that with AIDS, you get a disaster. About half the people in the world have no place to go to the toilet. Three quarters of a billion are chronically hungry, and about a billion people are illiterate, and two-thirds of those are women. Well, that picture would be bad enough for some people. For me, that's a cause for concern. Other people generate even more anxiety when they look at what's coming. And I'd like to give you a relatively cautious assessment of what I think we can know about the next half century. And there are four items that we can know demographically with fair probability, and I invite contradiction from if there is reasons to disagree with this in our discussion. So I think the four things that we can anticipate from population in the next half century are more people, slower population growth, more urbanization, and aging. The UN estimates two to four, additional, two to four billion more people by the year 2050. Virtually all of that growth will occur in the poor countries, not in the rich countries. Population growth could end by the middle of the next century, but that depends on the choices we have now because we have the largest group of young people of childbearing age coming on stream now that have ever lived on Earth. Virtually all population growth, if there are an additional two to four billion, all of that will be in cities, and virtually no population growth will occur in rural areas. And finally, there will be more elderly people in absolute numbers and a higher percent. I want to illustrate these now. This slide was based on UN projections in 1992 prepared in 1992 and shows that the median projection gives for the year 2050 a population of close to 10 billion. I'm showing you an obsolete slide for a good reason. If you looked at the 1998 projections, this same curve would be 1 billion lower. It would be about 9 billion people is the median projection for the year 2050. So in the space of six years, because fertility has been dropping more rapidly than anybody anticipated, the expected number of people 
50 years hence has dropped by one whole billion. Our understanding of the future is unstable because we don't have very good theory for fertility or mortality. The 98 projection is the first one that includes increasing death rates due to AIDS and due to economic and social collapse in the former communist world. So things happen that we don't anticipate. So there will be more people. That was the first point. The second point is the population growth rate will be slower. This you've seen before. This is the observed and predicted percent increase per year using this axis. This is the absolute number added each year. The absolute number reached a peak around 1990 on the order of 90 million people a year and has been dropping since then to about 78 million and anticipated to come down. So we anticipate slower growth. The third change is urbanization. At the beginning of the century, about 200 million people lived in cities, and that was 13% of the world's population. Today, there are about 14 times as many people living in cities, and it's almost half of the world's population. It seems safe to say that the 20th century will be the last century in human history in which more than half of the world's people lived in the countryside. From here on out, it looks like an urban world. And the concentration in very large cities has increased. At the beginning of the century, there were no cities of 10 million people or more. By 1950, there was one. Can anybody guess where it was? Guess. Mexico City, I hear. Any other guesses? New York, right. It was New York. It was the only city with 10 million people or more. This year, there are 20 such cities, and 16 out of those 20 are in the poor world. Only four are in developed countries, so-called developed countries. And those cities now have almost 10% of all the people who live in cities. Now, I want to connect this with your daily life. I arrived here yesterday, and I picked up the Berkeley Daily Planet. The top front page story was the Marines are not going to do their exercise in New York, in uh, Berkeley in, a where, in an abandoned warehouse. Did anybody see that story? Yeah, okay, what's the relevance? Wars happen where the people are. The wars of the future are going to happen in major urban centers. And the CIA and the Pentagon know that. And they are trying to train troops to fight in urban centers. That's a consequence of what we're talking about here. They're really not out to intimidate Berkeleyans, I don't think, because they're aware of this and they're trying to do this on a global basis. So we've talked about uh, more people, slower growth, increasing urbanization, and as urbanization proceeds, illustrated by this picture, it will have environmental consequences. Cities will demand more food and fiber and fresh water from the countryside without an increase in the number of people living in the countryside. If cities expand into the agricultural land around cities, remember most cities are founded where you could grow good food, so most cities are surrounded by agricultural land. If that expansion happens, the land available for food and fiber production and water collection could be reduced. 
and the fourth change that I wanted to talk about is aging. And I don't know if you can actually see this, so I'll trace the curves. In the last half century, the fraction of the, of the global population of children aged zero to four years declined and reached 10% this year and is projected to continue to decline. In the last half century, the fraction of the population 60 years and older increased and reached 10% this year and is projected to continue to increase. This century is the 20th century, the one that's passed, was the last century in human history in which young people outnumber older people. From here on out, it's going to be more older people than younger people. Improved survival, you can get the lights down just a little here, raised the average length of life from maybe 30 to 40 years in 1900 to more than 66 years in the year 2000. By 2050, there could be 3.3 people aged 60 years and old for every child four years or younger, according to the UN median projection. Grandparents will be a lucky minority. Let's look at the number of children aged 6 to 16 years, according to the UN projections. In all of the countries of the world, from 1990 up to 2050, the total number is approximately flat. That's the world's school-aged population. In the more developed countries, that's the rich countries, that's you and me, the number of such children is going to drop by 24%. Bad news for teachers, there are going to be fewer kids to teach. In the less developed countries as a whole, it will be flat because this is 80% of the world, but in the least developed 48 countries, there will be a 70% increase by the year 2040. So that is information for educational planners. If you take children who are 6 to 16 and add 10 years to those, to their age, 10 years later on this axis, you have a projection of the number of military-aged children. And you can see from that that the supply of military-aged man and woman power in the rich countries will decline, while that in the least developed countries will rise dramatically. All of these changes result from choices by individuals and societies. They are not inevitable outcomes of a deterministic world. How much we invest in public health and biomedical research, how many children we decide to have, where we choose to live, and whether we settle our peace differences peacefully or violently, all influence whether the human population of the coming century will be larger, more slowly growing, more urban, and older. As people spread over the earth, they bring with them their cultivated plants and animals. The world has about 4.1 billion large domestic animals and about 17 billion chickens. These populations have been growing more rapidly than the human population, and over the last 20 years, these populations have consumed about 40% of all the grain grown. What that means is that for every three pounds of grain that go into a human mouth, two pounds of grain go into the mouths of our domestic animals. 
In other words, we could feed on a vegetarian diet a population of about 10 billion people today. But in fact, we feed 6 billion because 40% of the grain goes into domestic animals where you lose 90% of the calories due to ecological inefficiency, so you get enough food out of those animals to feed about 600 million, six-tenths, and those are the six-tenths of a billion, and those six-tenths of a billion live in the rich countries. So our choices about feeding have an effect on how many people we can feed. In the U.S., incidentally, the fraction of grain that's grown that goes into animal mouths is about 85%. And our domestic animals do have environmental impacts. This is Morocco. Those are goats. Even in Morocco, the goats don't have wings, and they don't fly. Why are they up there? Somebody tell me, why are they up there? Food, right. They want to eat something. And you can imagine what that does to the regeneration of this semi-arid forest. I now turn from population to economics. One index of economic activity is the use of energy. In 1860, the average person used approximately one megawatt hour per year of energy. How much is a megawatt hour per year? I assure, I'm, assume that it all has an intuitive meaning to every one of you here. But in case it doesn't, you can think of me as a 100-watt light bulb. Right, okay. If you take the amount of energy that an ordinary professor or even a student, sort of a sedentary student, consumes, over one year it works out to about one megawatt hour per year. Uh, pardon? Any less than I'm a dim bulb, the gentleman says here. Quite right. So uh, one megawatt hour per year of inanimate energy is the equivalent of having one slave in energetic form walking around behind. In 1990, 91 actually, the amount of inanimate energy used from all sources was about 19 megawatt hours per year. So each of us used about the equivalent of 19 energetic slaves trailing around behind us. These lights, the airplane that flew me out here, everything that we use that involves energy, heating of this building. Meanwhile, the population went from a little bit over 1 billion, five-fold increase, a little bit more than 5 billion. So you take 5 and multiply it by 19, and the total energy went from about 1 billion megawatt hours per year in 1860 to about 95 uh, in 1991, almost a hundred-fold increase. For comparison, the amount of energy that the sun gives the continents in the fraction of the spectrum suitable for growing plants is estimated somewhere around 25 billion megawatt hours per year, which means that around 1950, human inanimate energy production surpassed what the sun gives us for growing food and has grown since then. So humans have become a geological force on the face of the earth. And if you look where that energy is coming from, it's coming from coal, oil, and gas, primarily. Consequence is a change in the composition of our atmosphere that I'll come back to later. 
Well, economies run not only on energy, but on people. And these are women farmers. It's not well known, but it's true that a majority of farmers in the world are women. In 1970, for every 100 men in the labor force, there were 37 women. By 1990, the number had almost doubled to 62. And it's not an accident that as this dramatic transition occurred, fertility rates began to fall worldwide. We don't know the direction of causation, but there certainly is an association there. The point of this slide is that the number of people seeking jobs is not a function of demography only, which is the number of people there are, but of the cultural roles that people find acceptable or necessary. The influx of women into the labor force meant that the number of job seekers grew much more rapidly than the population. It isn't numbers of people alone that are a concern. These are three stone crushers or rock crushers in Bangladesh. Their unenviable job is to take big rocks and by hand crush them into little rocks. As this slide shows, working women all over the world face a difficult balance between the tasks of production and reproduction. This slide is a wonderful slide, and I'm going to just walk you through parts of it. On this axis, we have world population, one, two, three, four, five, six billion. Instead of time, it's number of people on Earth down here. So this diagonal dashed line is world population. One billion here, one billion here, two billion, two billion, okay? This curve is the area planted to crops, total agricultural land in the world. And world, world agricultural land increased to about 1960 to about one and a half billion hectares and has been flat since then. Flat but not constant because some land has come into production and some other land has been exhausted or ruined and gone out of production. Agricultural land was constant. Nevertheless, nitrogen fertilizer production grew from practically nothing many, many, many fold. At the same time, irrigated land went from very low to much larger levels. The combination of nitrogen fertilizers, irrigated land, new varieties of crops, and new credit institutions, and new infrastructure to get food to market produced the Green Revolution. And that Green Revolution is what is responsible for our ability to feed the three billion people who have been added since the total amount of land planted has leveled off. Why am I showing you this? Because straight line projections don't work. If you look at this land and you make a projection, it doesn't go like that. If you look like this, it doesn't go like that, it goes like that. So there are always gonna be surprises, but we could not feed our six billion people with the technology of 1960, only four years ago. So we absolutely depend on new technology for food production. During the, that last half century, the prices of every major food crop had declined in real terms. 
rice, wheat, maize, or corn. Not only food commodities, petroleum dropped by about half, metals and minerals dropped substantially. Only timber increased in price because we can't make the trees grow faster yet. The GDP per person quadrupled over the century from about 1250 to 5200. And as the total number of people almost quadrupled, the total size of the economy grew 16-fold in the 20th century. But the goods were not the income that produced that enormous rise was not equally distributed. In fact, the reverse, inequality in increased. If you rank the world's people from, on income from high to low, in 1960, let's look at the top 20% versus the bottom 20%. The top 20% got 70.2% of all the income, the bottom 20% got 2.3% of all the income. So the ratio between the rich fifth and the poor fifth of income per person in 1960 was about 30 to 1. In 1970, the ratio was 32 to 1. In 1980, 45 to 1. In 1991, 60 to 1. So the number of chronically hungry people dropped to about three-quarters of a billion, except in Africa, where the number of chronically hungry people rose by two-thirds. So ask yourself the question, if the price of food is cheaper than it has ever been before, and there's more money floating around, how is it possible that we still have three-quarters of a billion people who are hungry when they wake up, hungry all day long, and hungry when they go to sleep. How is that possible? Economics says if the price of something is dropping, it's cheaper for everybody. But that's not true. It's only cheaper for the people who have money to pay. And if people are so poor that they are out of the market, their hunger does not register in world commodity markets. So world commodity prices are not a valid indicator of the well-being of people without the means of generating income. And that includes the poorest one or two billion people on the planet. It's not an indicator of well-being. OK, we've talked about population economics. Let's talk about environment briefly. This is a, one way of generating power is through these hydroelectric dams. We have locked up in dams about 10,000 cubic kilometers of water. That's about five times the volume of water in all the world's rivers and streams. And it's enough to change the rate of rotation of the Earth around its axis. Why is that? Because most of the water in the world is in equatorial regions around the equator. And most of the land is further north. If you look at where the land is, it's, it's in the northern hemisphere, closer to the axis. Now, you know when a um, figure skater is spinning around and she wants to speed up her spin, what does she do? She brings her arms in, and it makes her spin real fast. 
What we've done is the same thing on a global basis. We're moving the water from the equator, like this, to the dams on the continents, like this, and it's affecting, it's actually decreasing the rate of slowing of the spin. Well, one thing we've learned recently is that there is no longer any way to throw things away to. Does anybody know what is the largest human-made structure in human history? Anybody know? What is it? The Great Wall, something about Manila. Huge junkyard. Yes, somebody knows, right. It's somebody from New York, obviously. The Fresh Kills Landfill on Staten Island. I hate to be a chauvinist, but New York is really special. We've got, we have the largest structure ever made by humans. It's nine square kilometers and about 100 meters high. I took my whole lab there to visit it. It's really a colossal thing. It's unbelievably big. And, you know, we, we, there's just no place to throw the stuff. It's going to be closed soon, and then I don't know what, what New Yorkers are going to do. This is another scene from New York. This is Love Canal. So not only do we make green revolutions and nitrogenous fertilizers, we also make plutonium and other toxic chemicals. This is in British Vancouver. This is a slope, clear-cut, old-growth forest. With a slope like that, the soil washes off in the first rains and takes tens of thousands of years to come back because it can't get a start until some kind of vegetation sprouts in the rocks and there's nothing around to seed it except what a bird drops. So it'll be a long time before the forests come back here. In 60 tropical countries, if you plot the population density and the percent forest cover, it goes like that. It's not always that simple. Interest rates matter because interest rates determine how fast you build roads into forests and that affects the rates but there is clearly an association. More people, less forest. Human economic activity is responsible for 98% of the animal extinction since 1600. Habitat conversion, hunting for food and for fur, and introductions of species. Well, I won't go into the details on all of these because there's just not enough time, but the carbon that we have been emitting to fuel our economy went from half a billion tons a year in 1900 to 7.3 billion tons in the year 2000. I'll skip these other examples. A consequence of that is that in this century alone, the carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere rose 20%, and it's now higher than it has been in the last 150,000 years. So again, we have become a force on geochemical cycles. And we have begun to experience surprises from the environment. Some of them are due, due to chemicals we've introduced, some due to people moving into the place of natural hazards, some because people don't realize that biological evolution is still going on, and some because of interactions of physical and economic constraints. The chemicals include DDT, asbestos, strontium, chlorofluorocarbons, which are the cause of the ozone hole, all that nitrogenous fertilizer, two-thirds of it runs off into the streams and causes health pollution, 
pollution of groundwater that people drink and pollution to uh, fisheries that grow in the coastal zones and acid rain. The natural hazards where we move into the hazard zones include floods, earthquakes, volcanoes, and storms. The biological hazards include the fact that if you use antibiotics, you select for resistance. We introduce species. We have new viruses because we move into contact with those viruses. So the environment has surprised us. I've talked about population, economics, and the environment. And an important part of my talk is that it's not sufficient to consider this circle without also considering culture. And if you were an economist, I wouldn't mind if you turned this pyramid on its side and put economics on top. But then economics rests on a base of population, culture, and environment. And if you're an ecologist, it's okay with me if you put environment on top. But it rests on population, economics, and culture. You can even be an anthropologist, I'm very broad-minded, and put culture on top. It still interacts with these. I don't care about the orientation, it's the interaction that's my message. This picture appeared in the New York Times in 1993. This is a vulture, and that's a little girl. And the caption, which you can't read, says, in a move meant to placate the West, the Sudanese government is opening parts of the country's famine-stricken South to relief operations, but for some it could be too late. Let's talk about that picture and see what it means. Does it show that Africa has exceeded the carrying capacity of the Earth for human beings? And I would like to argue that that is a very misleading and incomplete account of what's going on in this picture. So here are eight things that are going on in this picture that we have to think about. First of all, there was an environmental problem. The rains didn't come. That's a natural event. Second, a crop failed. That's partly a consequence of a natural event and partly an economic event because nobody invested in dams, ground wells, and irrigation to assure water. Third, there was an economic failure. There was food elsewhere in the country, but there was no market to meet the demand for that food, and there was no cash in her hands and her parents' hands to buy it. Fourth, there was a political and cultural failure. The people in the South, where she comes from, rebelled against the central government, and the government used starvation as a weapon because it was cheaper to starve them than to shoot them. Food was available elsewhere. Democratic countries have not had a famine in the 20th century. Fifth, there was a historical problem. Why did the people in the South rebel against the central government? The borders of Sudan were drawn by departing colonial powers, Great Britain and Egypt, to favor the Muslims in the North over the animists in the South. Sixth, there's the question of continuing international responsibility. In this conflict, one and a half million people have died in the Sudan since 1981. What is the responsibility of the former colonial powers for a continuing conflict that they've helped to create? And what is the responsibility of the other major powers who have stood by doing nothing, like the United States? A seventh question, parental responsibility. What responsibility do the parents of the child have during this war? And eighth, individual responsibility. What is my responsibility to this girl? 
this girl starved as a result of a complex chain of causes that include many human choices and not just because the population exceeded the local carrying capacity. I don't have time to talk about this slide. Okay, I promised to tell you how many people the Earth can support, and here it is. I spent three and a half years looking through all the scientific literature I could find for published estimates by reputable scientists on how many people the Earth could support. The first I found was 1679 by Antony von Leeuwenhoek, the very same man who invented the microscope. And the last go up to practically yesterday. They continue, people continue doing this in spite of my book on the subject, which you should certainly go out and buy. Well, there are three things, three things I'd like you to get out of this slide. First of all, in the last half century alone, by the way, this is a log scale, 1 billion, 10 billion, 100 billion, 1,000 billion, that's 1 trillion. And we are here today at 6 billion, this line, okay? In the last half century alone, the estimates have ranged from less than 1 billion to more than 1 trillion. So now you know the answer. Thanks a lot, he says. Okay. Is it, are you telling me it's time to quit, uh, or can I go on for just a couple more minutes? Let me go on for a couple more minutes, okay? They can't all be right, or there is no right answer, okay? And the truth is, there is no right answer. Second thing to notice is that the scatter has increased. If we were talking about the speed of light, you'd expect the estimates to be widely differing initially, and then gradually to come together. The fact that they are going increasing scatter means that we're not talking about a constant of nature. In fact, these are political numbers. The high numbers are intended to assure you that there's no problem if we have 6 billion or 12 billion. And the low numbers are intended to alarm you that we're already way over the limit of what we can support and we should be very active to reduce the number of people we have. This is the frequency distribution, and it shows you that about half of all the estimates lie between 4 billion people and 16 billion people. Since we're right in there now, maybe this is something we ought to be thinking about a little bit. These are the methods, and I'm not going to talk about the methods today because time is just too short. If you come back tomorrow, we can go into the details. What I would like to leave you with is an account of why the question itself, how many people can the Earth support, gets such different answers. How can you get a thousandfold different answers to what looks like a scientific question? And the way you do it is by making different assumptions in the background. And here's what's going on in the background. When you want to ask how many people can the Earth support, you have to also ask and make assumptions about how many with what average level of material well-being. Are we going to live like the inmates of Auschwitz, four men to a plank, or are we going to live like Americans with incredible material well-being? How much food, fiber, water, housing, industrial output, health, sanitation, energy, education, and travel? And with what distribution of material well-being? Are we going to have one wealthy person 
and the rest of the population in poverty, like Romania's Ceausescu, or are we going to have a more equitable distribution like Sweden or Japan? With what technology? Are we going to have fertilizers? Are we going to use uh, genetically engineered crops? What's the technology that we're going to choose to use in the future? And with what domestic and international political institutions are we going to resolve our conflicts by violence or by negotiation? What does this mean concretely? In Yugoslavia, there were certain ethnic differences that resulted in violent warfare, that resulted in the exile of about 300,000 people in West Germany who can't go home because their homes have been bombed out of existence. On the other hand, in Czechoslovakia, there were ethnic differences. They held a referendum. As a result of the vote, they set up the Czech Republic and the Slovak Republic. No blood was shed, and they've got all their material assets. How you resolve conflict affects how many people the Earth can support. And with what domestic and international economic arrangements? Example, let's say I live in a small island country, and all I've got is bird guano, you know, the, the droppings from birds. Happens to be a very good fertilizer. And let's say you live in a very large country in West Africa with a sterile granitic soil, which happens to be the case in many places there. You can't grow anything because the soil is sterile. If your country and mine can trade, I sell you my guano. You grow food. I buy the food from you with the income you gave me from the guano. We are both better off and the world can support more people. If we don't trade, we're both going to be hungry. So that example shows what was wrong with the picture I showed you earlier. Population, economics, environment, and culture, yes, but not one pyramid for the world. Thousands or millions of locally different pyramids interacting on a global scale, interacting economically through trade, interacting demographically through migration, interacting culturally through the media and blue jeans and Coca-Cola cultural icons and interacting environmentally through the global commons of the oceans and the atmosphere. The, the carbon dioxide that comes out of my gas tank mixes with the carbon dioxide that comes out of a coal-fired power plant in Beijing in the atmosphere in about five or six days. So there's no hope of regulating the atmosphere unless there's an agreement between what happens in the most powerful industrial society and the largest demographic society and all the other actors. How many people can the Earth support depends on domestic and international demographic arrangements covering migration. Depends on what physical, chemical, and biological environment we want. Do we want a world with only two species, people and wheat, or do we want to have a few other devices? Do we want to have a few other species? Do we want to have jaguars with a capital J, the kind you drive, or jaguars, the kind you get to enjoy if you go to their habitats or to the zoo. With what, how many people can the Earth support with what variability or stability? What does that mean? Well, we've had 10,000 years of good times since the last ice age. What's going to happen when the next ice age comes? Are we going to let our population drop back to the number we can feed, or are we going to stop the ice age somehow? Nobody knows how to do that. Do we want a population that we can sustain 
during ice ages or are we going to ride up and down? That's a choice about variability or stability. With what risk or robustness? When people settle in the floodplain of the Mississippi River, they get a higher carrying capacity in return for more risk because when the floods come, as they will come, they get wiped out. So what trade-off do we want between risk and robustness? For how long? If you talk about five years hence, we got plenty of oil. 50 years, there's considerable doubt. 500 years, probably doesn't matter because we'll have other energy technologies. How long concerns how much, how many people the Earth can support. And finally, with what values? And here, I think, is the most important point of all of these. Values determine how parents trade off the number of children against the quality of children. How parents choose between parents' freedom to reproduce and children's freedom to eat. But that's awfully highfalutin. Let's get down to the nuts and bolts. Values determine whether people view a cow as a holy animal or as a Big Mac on wheels. Values determine whether people look at their pet dog as a pet or as a square meal. Values determine whether this shirt is cotton. I happen to like cotton. But cotton is incredibly intensive in its demands for water. It takes to grow one kilogram of cotton fiber in irrigated agriculture in Oklahoma. You know how much water it takes in weight? One kilogram of fiber. How much water does it take? Anybody want to guess? A hundred kilograms. Give me, I'm, I'm taking bids now. I got a hundred. What do you give me? Give me a guess. Two hundred. Okay. Twenty-nine thousand kilograms. The ratio of weight is 29,000 to 1. And I won't go into the details. If you want to ask, I can go through it. But the fact is, if, you're, if you make a shirt out of polyester, and I don't happen to like polyester, if you make a shirt from polyester, the marginal water cost is zero because you manufacture polyester from corn cobs and from other waste cellulose products that you would throw away otherwise. So the choice of fabric, a value choice, makes a material difference, that's a pun, a material difference to how many people the Earth can support. In the coming half century, we and our children are less likely to face absolute limits than difficult trade-offs. Trade-offs among population size, economic well-being, and environmental quality, and dearly held values. Foresight and action now might make some of the coming trade-offs easier. I'll stop there. I thank you very much for your patience and your interest, and I look forward to your questions. Just wait one second. People who are leaving, please feel free to leave without embarrassment. Uh, I, I want to just give people one, one second to, to depart, and then I'd like to have your question. Don't forget to buy my book. It's called How Many People Can the Earth Support? It's in paperback. You can get it on uh, Barnes & Noble or Amazon.com. It's a real bargain. Thank you. Oh, damn. Nice to see you.
Okay, first question, sir. Chronicle yesterday, there was a nice article about Pioneer Park, which happens to have been uh, the, there's a Coit Tower there, which was um, the erection of Mrs. Uh, Lily Hitchcock Coit, the same lady who had died this lecture series. And it was the people in the neighborhood who decided that that park needed some attention, some resurrection, in, in effect. That's local action, and that's the only way that local things get taken care of. At the same time, uh, we also need to pay attention to the global issues. So I would say that, it's, that the lo local activists should not change their agenda, but perhaps broaden it. Yes, ma'am. things that weren't viewed as resources before into resources. I agree with that completely. I think that's, that's right. I could give you a lot of examples, but you probably can give you other examples. Sir? In your view, do you expect a more catastrophic population or a more gradual one if you agree with that? In my view, do I expect a catastrophic or a gradual drop in population in the future? Uh, my hope is for a gradual one. I think it's entirely conceivable that population worldwide could be declining without greatly increasing death rates. Because that's, it's not just population decline. I want people to have good, healthy, long lives with dignity and liberty. Those two things, you know, it's important. Uh, by the middle of the next century, 44% of the world's people today live in countries where the total fertility rate, that's the average number of children per woman per lifetime, is below the replacement level of 2.1. <laughs> now, if people today choose to make an effort to get access to modern methods of contraception to the other 49% of married couples that don't have that access, this means action and dollars and politics. If we extend family planning to the rest of the people who want it, we can accelerate that decline 
in voluntary ways, because there are lots of people who would like to contracept well and don't have the means. So, in fact, it's, it's partially up to us. There are other things that we don't control. Comets from space, viruses, massive volcanic eruptions, earthquakes. There are things we just don't control. We've got to face it. But if we play our cards right, we could have a gradual decline. And I personally think that the world would not be a worse place if we had time to adjust to the age structure of a population in decline. And if we have the social inventiveness, not only the technological inventiveness, to provide meaningful and productive social roles for the elderly. So there are lots of ifs in that statement, and that's the way I think we have to approach it. Yes, sir. Recognizing that there are lots of ifs, what uh, are the most uh, important constraints facing uh, the population and our quality of life in the future? But this was an easy question. What, accepting all the ifs, what are the most important constraints facing our population in the future? Well, uh, Different people give different answers to that question, OK? Some people think that we are energy constrained, not in our capacity to produce it, because we've got the means to produce plenty of energy, but in our capacity to cope with the byproducts, which we don't want from the process of producing the energy. If it's fossil fuels we're talking about, we cannot go on dumping it into the atmosphere. We will cook ourselves. And if it's nuclear fuel we're talking about, we don't know what to do with the waste products. So we don't have a solution to the energy problem. That's one view. A second view that many people adopt is fresh water. Because there are large parts of the world that are water scarce today. On a global basis, we've got plenty of water, in fact. But it's in the wrong place at the wrong time, not under control. Other people think that biological evolution the evolution of viruses that we don't know how to cope with could be a most serious threat. The fact is that generation time is short for small organisms and long for big organisms. We are big organism. So you get lots of generations of virus per generation of humans. That means that on an evolutionary time scale, they can outrun us as they are doing. So that's a concern of some people. Other people are concerned about our social inventiveness. Remember those cities? Those cities that are going to have three quarters of the world's people in the next couple of generations? We're bringing to pe together people of different cultures, and our cultures prepare us poorly to live with people of other cultures. There is a kind of ethnocentrism that's built into most of the world's religions. And that could be a very severe problem when we're all sipping each other's tea. We're all in the same place. There are political problems. Our political system has its limitations in conflict resolution. So depending on whether you're a social scientist, a natural scientist, you know, an energy scientist, you can pick your problem. We need them all. We need to solve all of those problems. It's not a unifactorial problem. 
Yes, sir. Hi. The Earth is slowing down. The rotation of the Earth is slowing down. Okay, it's gradually slowing down. Very slowly, but it's slowing. And what the dam building has done by moving the water onto the continents is decrease the rate of slowing down. It's, but it, it, we're talking about, you know, milliseconds, microseconds. We're not talking about, but, not, you know, not in our lifetime. Not in the lifetimes of our children, probably not as long as the human species is on the planet for the next couple of years. But it is, it's a measurable effect, a calculable effect. And I can give you the reference if you're interested. But that, that's, it's decreasing the rate of slowing down. Yes, sir, in the back. Do I believe that homosexuality could have a beneficial effect on global population? Uh, you see, what implied in that statement, the question, is something about what beneficial means. If you ask me, does it lessen the number of people who are bearing children, the answer is probably yes. Although an increasing number of homosexual couples, both male and female, have either adopted or gotten surrogate parents. So even that effect is minimal. But there's a broader conception of beneficial, which is the sum of people's happiness. And I don't know enough about that subject to have a, a, an opinion on that. Okay? That's, that's, that would be what I would first ask myself, not just the purely demographic, but what are the implications of homosexuality environmentally, if any, household size, for example, economically and culturally. And that, I would try to make a whole picture and not just say, well, look, they're not having children, so therefore it's a good thing. I would try to tackle the whole picture. Okay? Sir. You mentioned cultural implications on population. Uh, how do you overcome some of the cultural ideologies that are different from like Western societies, such as within Roman Catholic countries, especially like where contraception is forbidden or it's supposed to be forbidden? You know, you talk of increasing contraception availability for these people, but you know, what, how do you overcome the cultural barriers to decrease population? Another example being, you know, the role of women. You discussed um, how by increasing the, the role of women in economies, this decreases birth, uh, birth rates and fertility rates. Well, but in some, in some cultures, you know, women are, have a subservient role. Like, how do you overcome those? Okay. How do you come over, the question was, how do you overcome cultural obstacles to reducing population growth or to reducing fertility voluntarily? And the two examples that were given were uh, Roman Catholic countries where there's maybe an opposition to contraception and uh, cultures where, the, where women are permitted to have only a subservient role, right? Uh, let's talk about Roman Catholic countries first. 
in the United States, there used to be a difference in fertility between American Roman Catholics and American Protestants. That difference has disappeared. There's now no difference whatsoever. Latin America is a principally Roman Catholic region, and the total fertility rate in Latin America in the last 30 years has dropped from six children to, per woman to about three children per woman. Um, the Roman Catholic Church, in fact, makes a priority of educating girls, and some of the oldest educational institutions in this country are Catholic colleges for women. The, that kind of education sets the preconditions for a fall in fertility regardless of the methods of contraception. In fact, the first country in the world where fertility began its modern fall was Catholic France, where fertility began to fall before the French Revolution and has continued to be low since then. The, some of the countries with the lowest fertility in the world today are Catholic Italy and Catholic Spain, 1.2 children per woman. If you read the documents that come out of the Vatican, the Council of Bishops of the Vatican has come out with a statement that says, it's unthinkable that couples will go on in the future with having more than 2.1 children per woman. Now, this reportedly infuriated the Pope, but it was a published document, and I'm citing this to let you know that there is a diversity of views among Catholics. And I recommend to you a book called Population Growth from a Catholic Perspective, which shows that there are different points of view on this issue within the Catholic Church. And certainly, if you look at the behavior of Catholics as opposed to the dogma that comes from the top, you see an increasing acceptance that responsibility for one's family and society includes responsibility for certain limitations on one's own fertility. So I think that religious dogma is not the obstacle. It's giving people education and the means of directing their own behavior. In societies where there's a, there are some, let's, take the, let's be blunt about it. In Muslim societies, Muslim religious doctrine does not prohibit modern contraception and doesn't even prohibit abortion in the first trimester. But in some Muslim societies, women are given a subservient role. In fact, to be blunt about it, the men in those societies don't want to give up power, and they're using Islamic tradition as a baton to beat the women. In other equally Muslim societies, women are very liberated, they're educated. Look at Turkey. Women you know, serve in the legislatures, uh, they're professors. There's nothing in the religion that's the problem. It's whether people want to permit women to have a full modern role. And that depends on struggle by the women. And I think we should support that struggle. Remember, in the United States, women only got the vote in 1920. That's not that long ago. So uh, we got a long, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't uh, you know, shake our finger at other cultures. It's a real hard road to, to travel. Sir. How effective is the one-child policy? 
policy in China. Uh, fertility began to decline in China several years before the one-child policy was put in. We can't do a controlled experiment and run China again without the one-child policy. So we don't know how rapidly it has come down. It would have come down had there not been that policy. Probably it contributed substantially to a rapid decline. But what's happening now is the government is relaxing that policy because they realize that it's going to bring them all kinds of problems. So what, what they're saying now is if a man who is a one child of a couple and a woman is a one child of a couple and they marry, they can have two children. And since most of the people are one child and one child, a lot of the couples get to have two children. The problem is who's going to take care of the old people if the age structure is imploding? Because you know, it, it, it means that, that if those two man and woman had one child, they've got four grandparents to take care of. It doesn't work. The numbers don't work out very easily. So in fact, China is, is in effect, relaxing the one-child policy. But their, po their population is probably going to go to about one and a half billion and level off. And then what happens beyond that, I... Well, yes. Yeah, many more males, the comment was, many more males survive past the age of five. That's, there are multiple reasons for that. There's selective abortion, there's selective infanticide, there's selective adoption out. And um, that, again, like this one child thing, is going to boomerang right in their face. You know, you've got 100 men and 60 women. What happens to the other 40 guys? It's tough. So they, haven't, they didn't really, there are going to be consequences that they're not going to like. Let's see how we're doing on time. Uh, two more questions and then we quit? Or do you want more? I, gentlemen, OK. Listen, if you, if you feel like you want to leave, leave. I'll, I'll stay here for another five or 10 minutes and then we'll go. OK? Yeah, you mentioned earlier Uh, question was for more information on humans' impact on other species. Well, a lecturer in this series was Norman Myers, M-Y-E-R-S, and he's written quite a few books on this topic. He was here about two years ago. So I would suggest looking him up. His name is spelled on the program. Uh, M-Y-E-R-S. Did I misspell it? M-M-Y-E-R-S. Thank you very much. Uh, This is a situation where our information is even shakier than it is about how many people there are on the Earth. We don't know to within a factor of about 30 how many species there are on the planet. Some people say 3 million, some people say 100 million. The best guesses are somewhere between 3 and 30 million. Second thing we don't know is how fast the turnover would be on a baseline. We do know what the turnover is for hard-shelled organisms in the fossil record, but we don't know about all the species, the soft-bodied organisms like plants and some most animals. So we don't know how fast they go extinct on the average, and now we don't know what we're doing. But the estimates are, so I'm just giving you estimates, okay? The estimates are that we've increased the extinction rate by perhaps a thousandfold. That is, the, the rate at which species go extinct. And the reasons I showed you are 
basically hunting, species introduction, and habitat alteration. Ed Wilson, who also lectured in this series, said, the sin our children will least forgive us is the extinction of species. That's a value question in years of evolution. And they, each one of them embodies an integrated system of genes and of metabolism. It's not just genes, it's metabolism. It's all that stuff in the cell that makes the genes work, which is unique, irreplaceable, and we don't fully understand it yet. If I got a new car, I would not start by throwing out parts without having read the instruction manual. And that's what we're doing to the Earth. So I think that we really have to be thoughtful. And uh, I don't think we are yet thoughtful about what we're doing on, on extinction of species. We need a lot more information. That's something that, you know, if you want to give your life to that, you could do a lot worse. Certain, certain. Mr. Luker. I think it was just about 30 years ago, in the corner of here, in a large auditorium, the biologists spoke on roughly this topic with, I think, less notice than you had. But that evening, the auditorium was full an hour beforehand, and half an hour, hour beforehand, they had to have the urinal and the firewall, knock the doors, and set up top speakers outside. Tonight's uh, lecture is much more confident Thank for you. a number of reasons, including history. But why is this? So, <laughs> well, I think there are, did you hear the question? The question is, 30 years ago, some unnamed biologist, I'd like to know who it was. Paul Ehrlich, right. Well, that's the answer. Well, it's part of the answer. Okay, Paul Ehrlich in 1968 wrote a book called The Population Bomb. And in 1972, the Club of Rome published a book called The Limits to Growth. Now, I don't know what the sales on the population bomb were, but the, the Limits to Growth sold 9 million copies. Well, okay, the last time I looked, several years ago, 9 million. That's a lot of books. And when those books were published, the population growth rate of the world had been accelerating because this is just at the point of this point, this turning. Remember I showed you? There was a tremendous amount of concern. Since then, the population growth rate has declined steadily. And there has been a systematic, I would say, misinformation campaign to say that concerns about population growth are obsolete. The problem is solved. There's no more problem. That is not true. We're still growing this lecture, you know, 9,000 people an hour, 24 hours a day, 78 million people a year. And the well-being of the population that we have is inadequate compared to our capacity. So why has, why has interest diminished? Well, Paul, Paul Eric's a better speaker. He's less concerned about the details of the facts. And OK, anyway. Uh, and, and the objective situation has changed, and the information about it has changed. Last question, sir. 
Thank you for that question. The question was, do I see any impact of the information revolution on population growth globally? And the answer is definitely yes. And I had the privilege of giving essentially this talk two weeks ago at IBM Research Headquarters. And they broadcast it worldwide over their intranet to all of their research facilities. And the focus of the talk was on what can information technology do to address each of these problems, environment, population growth, economics, and culture, into which I, which I see as the, the pieces of this picture. But let's focus specifically on population. In 1950, in the societies that began a rapid fall in fertility during the following decade, between 1950 and 60, the level of literacy was about 60%. So you had to have literate societies. People thought that literacy was a precondition for a rapid fall in fertility. In the 70s, that percent dropped to around 50%. That is, you had to have societies with only 50% of the people literate. In the 80s, it dropped to about 40%. And in the last decade, it dropped to about 30 to 20%. That is, we are beginning to see fertility fall in countries where most people are illiterate. Why? Because they can get information from soap operas and from the radio and TV. And people can find out, you can go to the movies. I was in Ouagadougou which is the capital of Burkina Faso in French West, former French West Africa. And I went to the movies across from my hotel, and it was a film filmed in Manhattan. And you can see how people live there, and you can see how many children they have. And anybody in the audience is smart enough to figure out that there's some kind of a connection there. And so information technology, and particularly the entertainment media, are having an enormous impact around the world on what people want out of life. Frankly, a lot of people would rather live like the guys in that movie from Manhattan than the way they are living. So information technology is crucial, but it's also crucial in, in the other domains. It's crucial particularly in the environment. We are flying this spaceship without instruments. We have weather stations. We have a few monitoring things in the ocean. But what we need is a worldwide wiring of the earth so that we know what's going on in the atmosphere, in the oceans, on the continents, at all times. And so that we have the capacity to model that and understand chemically and physically and biologically. We don't monitor the species. We don't know when species go extinct. We need information technology to monitor these things on a real-time, global basis. Otherwise, it's like driving 60 miles an hour on a highway at night with no lights, and that's what we're doing. So I think information technology, you know, in culture, I, I could go on and on. Yes, I think it's important. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed this. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.